Joshua chapter 24. This is after the people have been brought into the promised land and have conquered it and taken possession of it. And they have one last big meeting together with Joshua, their leader. And we read that Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornets before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwelt in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the people, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. 
Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you do falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnasereth, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Geash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. Let us now also read what Scripture teaches regarding the first commandment as it's summarized for us in Lord's Day 34 of the Catechism. Page 550. This begins the section of the Catechism on the Law. And the question is, what is the law of the Lord? Then we read the Ten Commandments as you heard them this morning. How are these commandments divided? Into two parts. The first teaches us how to live in relation to God. The second, what duties we owe our neighbor. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? Now, for the sake of my very salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. Further, that I rightly come to know the only true God, trust in Him alone, submit to Him with all humility and patience, expect all good from Him only, and love, fear, and honor Him with all my heart. In short, that I forsake all creatures rather than do the least thing against His will. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, do you like being told what to do? Probably, for honest, most of us don't. 
Isn't that the whole point of growing up? That you get to a point in your life where no one tells you what to do anymore? Or at least so some of our youth might think. The fact is that we all like to be independent. No one likes being told what to do. Sometimes that extends to our faith life as well. We like maybe being guided by our emotions or our feelings. But we don't like direct instruction. But if you approach the Ten Commandments from that perspective, you will never be able to truly love God. In John 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That requires us to know what they are. And the more we love the Lord, the more we want to know what his commandments are. And in his first letter, the Apostle John writes that whoever says that he knows God, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So our attitude to God's law reflects the true nature of our relationship with Him. If we truly love Him, we will want to keep His commandments. Now that may seem like a negative note to begin with. And yet this afternoon, we will see that God's law is founded in love. Not just our love for God, but God's love for us. A love that embodies a fierce Loyalty, an exclusive love. The Ten Commandments are motivated by the exclusive relationship that exists between God and His people, and that is reflected at the very beginning in the first commandment, which we're going to look at this afternoon. We'll consider this afternoon that in the first commandment, God calls us to love Him with an exclusive love because He is our God and because we are His people. Now, to to be able to understand all of this, we first need to understand what idolatry is about. Idolatry is primarily about control. Maybe you've been to Bali before and you've seen an idol at the resort. Bali, of course, is um, the primary religion is Hinduism, so there's idols everywhere. And if you got up early enough, you would have seen one of the resort staff placing an offering before the idol. And usually that looks like a, a leaf, a banana leaf, which has been woven into a little basket, or maybe a little basket woven from dried grass. Often it contains one or two cookies, a stick of incense, and a cigarette. Now maybe you shook your head and wondered, well, why would anyone do that? Why would anyone worship an idol? Well, idolatry does actually make sense when you realize that this is about control. The people who worship these idols don't, don't think that the actual idol itself is alive or anything like that. They're, they're not stupid. But in heathen thinking, idols are a way of harnessing the power of the God that they represent. Just like a solar panel can harness the power of the sun and make it controllable, so an idol is supposed to harness the power of the God. And then when you, when you treat the idol right, then they believe you can exert some kind of control over the God that it represents. 
If you take good care of the idol, if you perform all of the right rituals, then the God will give you what you want. And um, idolaters, which is people who worship idols, are quite sure that this works. And so they put their trust in the idol, not in the sense of trust as, as we mean it, not in the sense of surrendering to God, but trust in the sense of a confidence that if you just do the right thing, then you can get the idol, the God, that it represents to do something for you. So an idol makes the God controllable in the mind of the worshiper. And that actually changes the nature of the relationship between an idol or between the, the uh, heathen God then and the person who worships it. Instead of being a relationship based on love and of devotion, it's a relationship based on control, which is something very different. That means that inherently this is a dysfunctional relationship. Having a relationship with an idol by definition is dysfunctional. Our relationship with God is very different from that because it's based on his self-revelation through Jesus Christ and his transforming work in our lives through the Holy Spirit. It's about renewal, regeneration and renewal, not about control. Now we see that difference reflected in Lord's Day 34 of the Catechism. If you look at Lord's Day 34, what is striking is how relational this terminology is. It's, it's not really what you would expect. If this was your very first time reading the Ten Commandments, your very first time reading the Catechism, you come to this part, you know, and it says, what is the law of God? And it says, this is what, what the law is. And you would, you would expect to read a, a series of instructions or something like that, but that's not what this is. This is relational terminology. Let's look at it. That I rightly come to know the only true God Trust in Him alone. Submit to Him with all humility and patience. Expect all good from Him only. Love, fear, and honor Him with all my heart. That's relational terminology. In short, that I forsake all creatures rather than do the least thing against His will. This is, this is very emotional, relational language. There is a relationship there. Not a relationship based on blind and unthinking obedience or fear, but a relationship based on knowing and loving the living God. And that is something that goes way beyond mere control. Now, how can the catechism be so sure that this is possible, this relationship? Because the whole Bible shows us that God is a God who, who reveals himself in history as a God who enters into relationships with his people. And we see that reflected very clearly in Joshua's speech. He refers to all of these different points in the history of God with his people when he had these relationships with people. The patriarchs, verses 2 to 4. The exodus, verses 5 to 7. Then the victories before the Jordan. The conquest in the promised land. And, and now they're looking back on that, and, and they realize God turned us into a nation. And the people themselves even testify to that from verse 17 onwards. They say, For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You hear an echo there of the Ten Commandments, the preamble. And who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went. And among all the peoples through whom we passed. So they look back on this and say, This is true. And God continued to reveal himself to his people in time as he worked towards the coming of the Christ. 
John 1 verse 17 says that the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, and, and we see law as being about control and grace and truth about permission, or grace about permission, but that's not what it's about at all. The law here is about love, and, and being shaped into God's people is about love. And it's love then that He gives us the law and does not leave us to our own devices. Grace is God's undeserved favor as well. It is grace that He forgives us when we sin. So these two things, law and grace, are complementary. That means that they complement each other. They're not opposites. It's not law in the Old Testament and grace in the New, but they, they fit together. They both come from that same love of God, a love that was embodied perfectly in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why John goes on to say that no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. That is, our Lord Jesus Christ. He has made the Father known. He is the ultimate expression of God's self-revelation. He is the one who made it possible through His atoning death, through His resurrection, through the Spirit that He sent out among us for us to be God's people forever. So this great God is the one who calls people into a relationship with Himself. And that relationship is, is in a sense, because it's, it's very different from serving idols. Idolatry is easier. Idolatry is always easier. That's why the Israelites kept on doing it. Because you can't control an idol. You can worship it on your own terms. It, it doesn't... It doesn't represent the same kind of love. It doesn't have the same sort of influence. That's why people who worship idols always end up being polytheists. There's always more than one. And the thing about polytheism is there's always room for more than one as well. The, the um, different gods tolerate each other. But the God of the Bible does not operate like that. The whole reason why Idolatry makes him so angry because it takes away from the exclusiveness of the relationship that he has with us. He doesn't want to be second. He wants to be the only one. In that sense, our relationship with God is quite similar to marriage. A married woman is not being unreasonable, is she? When she says that she wants to be the only woman in the marriage relationship. If there are more, then the relationship loses its exclusiveness. Any married person understands this. And God's relationship is, is a long-standing one. God has been there for His people in many Christianities, essentially a historical religion. It, it, God revealed Himself in history through the patriarchs, in the Exodus, in the victories before the Jordan, in the conquest in the Promised Land, and everything that happened afterwards. He delivered His people. He was loyal to His people. What have the idols done? The idols have never done anything. And when the people finally, in Jeremiah 3, verse 24, the, um, He confesses on behalf of the people. He says, From our youth, shameful gods have consumed the fruits of our father's labor. Their flocks and herds, their sons and daughters... It's the, it's the heathen gods that take and take and take. They never give. But the Lord walks with His people. Can any idol do what God has done for His people? Can any idol call us into fellowship with itself? No. That is why God calls us to love Him with an exclusive God, an exclusive love, because He alone is our God. 
and because we are his people. And we'll look at that next. Now, so far, the examples we've given of idolatry are quite um, obvious. But the thing about idolatry is that it's very subtle. It affects, infects and affects you long before you realize it. You can tell this from our reading as well. Idolatry in that whole history of the people, idolatry keeps on popping up in this chapter. The forefathers, the family even of Abraham, worshipped other gods. But then in Egypt, the people themselves worshipped other gods as well. Look at that, verse 14. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. He's saying to them, look, from beginning to end, your existence has been bracketed by idolatry. The Lord didn't call you from over the river. He didn't call you out of Egypt because you knew him so well, because of the exclusiveness of your love to him. You, you people have been idolaters, he says, from the beginning. And then they say, um, well, we'll serve the Lord now. And we are witnesses. And then in verse 23, Joshua says, well, if that's so, then you can put away the foreign gods that are among you now as well. See, even as they say it, they still have these idols among them. Their ancestors worshipped other gods. They worshipped other gods. When Joshua speaks to them, they're still having gods on the side, little, little gods. They've never, ever worshipped God properly. After the exodus, after the desert wanderings, after everything that happened, they still have little idols on the side. It's this pervasive, this pervasive presence of idolatry in their relationship with God. And Joshua calls them to obedience. He says, you need to break with this. And they agree. Look at that, verses 22 to 24. You're witnesses, and this is kind of a, a call and response. The people say, yes, the Lord our God, we will serve, and his voice we will obey. But then what happens? They make this commitment, but they don't do anything. It's interesting. Joshua has confronted them with the presence of, of idols in their midst, and they say, we promise to get rid of them. And then what? Then Joshua is the one who wrote these words down and made a covenant and sets up the stone as a witness and sends the people away. But there's no record as to what the people themselves did. There's no record of them actually putting away these gods. And in that sense, we're very similar. We promise that we'll do better. We have plans for self-improvement. But are we consistent in following through? The people promise loyalty, but they don't actually show it. And that's meant to teach us how subtle idolatry is, how pervasive its grip is on the human heart. Because these people thought they were being sincere. They really meant it when they said this. You can't fault them for sincerity, but you know what? Nothing actually changed. And the outcome of that is already foreshadowed in the... End of the book, verse 31. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. So they served him for two generations, essentially. But already here, there's a, an ominous note that there's an expiration date on their service. And right after this, we get the book of Judges with its chaos. It's very difficult for the children to break with the sins of their fathers. Idolatry, therefore, is just as subtle for us now. We should never make the mistake of thinking that we are fundamentally different from the people that the Bible describes. We're not. 
We can be completely convinced that this is not our problem. This is something they do in Bali. Well, actually, we are in the middle of it. Remember, idolatry is about control. Control can also have to do with, per- have to do with perception. For example, there are people who want to be regarded in a certain way, so they try to control their circumstances so that they can control how other people regard them. Now, one application we can make here is in the realm of of women's clothing. Maybe that's not an application you expected to make in connection with the first commandment. But it's an issue that many Christian women have to deal with. It's difficult for women to find modest clothing sometimes because so much of it is designed, because of the time that we live in, to expose as much of them as possible. We're talking about clothing that forces you to sit in a particular way to avoid showing your underwear, clothing with a plunging neckline, clothing that leaves your shoulders and upper back completely exposed, and you can think of other examples that all falls into that category. And again, it's not something you would associate with the first commandment necessarily. When, when you think about modesty, you'd probably think about the seventh commandment, not the first But actually, this has more to do with the first. Many Christian women have been desensitized by their culture to the point where they think it is normal to dress in a way that draws attention to their bodies. And some women like it when they can influence and control the way that people regard them. And that makes it a first commandment issue because it's about control. It's about controlling your circumstances. Now, why do some Christian women dress like that? Could be motivated by different things. Maybe for some women it's motivated by insecurity. Maybe they're afraid of being rejected and they know that if they dress in a certain way, then they will never be rejected but always command attention. Maybe others are motivated by pride and they even try to gloss it over with a veneer of religiosity. They might say something like, well, God has given me a beautiful body. And I want to display it. But pride is still sin against the first commandment because it is motivated by self-love. God is to be the center of attention, not ourselves. And that should be particularly obvious when it comes to wearing clothing, when it comes to the kind of clothing that you wear to church. Think about it. If the way that you dress for church distracts the people that are sitting behind you, you have taken away from God's glory in the worship service. We just sang about that in in the psalm at the beginning. Glory dwells within His tent. God's glory is the visible manifestation of His splendor. Woe to us if in any way we take away from that glory. Now maybe you've never thought about it quite this way before. It's, pretty, it's easier to spot idolatry when it comes in an obvious form. But it's no less idolatry when it comes in this form. Remember, it's about control. And it's not just an issue for young ladies to keep in mind when they consider what to wear to church, to the shops, or even to weddings. Mothers have a responsibility here to educate their daughters in the area of modesty. Fathers have a responsibility to show appropriate fatherly love to their daughters as well. A young lady who knows that her father loves her and approves of her is less likely to look for negative male approval elsewhere. Young married men in particular 
have a responsibility to ensure that their wives are dressed modestly. This is part of showing headship. Consider the words of Proverbs 5 or 16, written to men, but it could apply to women just as well. It says, should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? And the implied answer is no. Yes, the wife should be a delight to her husband's eyes and no one else's. Now it could be that you're sitting here this afternoon and you're feeling defensive or embarrassed when you hear this. But consider what the Catechism tells us when it first gives us the law. In question and answer 93, it asks the question, how are these commandments divided into two parts? The first teaches us how to live in relation to God. The second, what duties we owe our neighbor. In other words, we are not to live in a way that puts our own interests first. We are part of relationships, vertically and horizontally. Our life is defined by these relationships. Our primary relationship is with God. Every other part of our, of our life is subordinate to that. That is what the whole first commandment is about. And that comes with a call to joyful obedience. It's expressed in joyful obedience from our side. To put it in the words of the catechism, we would forsake all creatures rather than do the least thing against his will. So even the very possibility of transgressing the first commandment by how we dress should fill us with horror. The real question is, question is not whether or not this dress is too short. If you start looking at it from a rules and regulations point of view like that, that's a, the wrong question to ask. The real question is, do you love God with an exclusive love? Do you love God with an exclusive love? And are you willing to show that in how you dress? That's part of the answer to that question. And remember, this is not about sincerity. The, the people in Joshua 24 were sincere as well. They were sincere and they were wrong in how they acted. Now, obviously, it's not only women who fall into idolatry. Men are equally prone to this sin. It just comes out in a different way. Many examples could be given. One indication is how you regard yourself. If you ask a man what he does for a living, sometimes he'll answer by saying, I'm a plumber, or I'm a roofie, or I'm a mechanic. Isn't that interesting? You ask someone, what do you do? And they respond with who they are. They connect themselves to what they do. They identify themselves by what they do. And that puts the emphasis on ourselves, doesn't it? This is not our primary identity, what we do for a living. Our primary identity is that we are God's people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. That is our primary identity. Everything else flows out of that. You're not just a plumber or a roofie or a mechanic. You're a Christian plumber or a Christian roofie or a Christian mechanic. You're someone who works in these fields, but that is not what defines you. Your faith is not just an accessory in an otherwise fundamentally secular life. It has to be central not just to what you do, but to who you are. Remember, idolatry is about control. Controlling our circumstances, controlling our surroundings, making that control the object of our thought, of our words of our actions. And if our 
If our surroundings and circumstances happen to be Christian, but our focus in life is on that control and on getting ahead, then we're just as much idolaters as the resort staff leaving an offering in front of an idol somewhere in Bali. Look, in Matthew 6, verse 24, the Lord Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other, but you cannot serve both God and money. And money, of course, um, also represents control in a way, doesn't it? You can do things with money. You can control your circumstances. And he uses the words love and devotion here. That, that implies attachment. We have a, a love affair with, with control and the things that we do with that. It involves not only our minds, but our hearts and our emotions as well. And then that spills over into everything else in life and how you speak to your children and the sorts of things you spend your time on and what you prioritize and what matters to you. It all comes back down to the law that we saw this morning of reaping and sowing. If we sow to the flesh, we can expect to reap what the flesh produces. It's very difficult to break with idolatry. The people said that they would, they really meant it. But in the end, they didn't even try. They had to be told what to do the whole time. Joshua died, his generation died, the elders died, and the people went straight back to polytheism. And finally, God ensured that they were conquered and taken into exile. So Joshua was completely right when he said, you are not able to serve the Lord, and neither are we, not by ourselves, this first commandment exposes our lack of love for God. You haven't even gotten through the law. We've fallen down out of the starting blocks. And so ultimately, this is a question of conversion. If you belong to Christ, then your heart belongs to him as well. He's laid his claim on your lives, but, but there's still a daily conversion. Right, Lord's Day 33, what is a true repentance and conversion of man? The dying of the old nature, the coming to life of the new, we, we call that sanctification. It's not the first conversion when you come to faith, but it is, it is the daily crucifixion of the flesh, the daily renewal that we all need to undergo. And Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says that the unconverted heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. That is bad news for sinners. But the good news is that when the Lord regenerates us, He regenerates our hearts as well. He writes the law on our hearts. Then instead of having sin engraved on the tablet of our hearts, we have the law of God written on there. And then we are, in fact, able to love the law of God. And we are able to deal with the idolatry in our lives. Not perfectly. Even the holiest have only a small beginning of disobedience, but the beginning is there. It is there. It is real. And then we need to be decisive. When Joshua spoke to these people, he was not calling them from a point of moral neutrality. He was not saying to them, you choose between two equally acceptable options, God or the idols. Instead, he was speaking in a context where God had already shown his love to them. And now they have to show it in response. And so do we. He's calling us all today as fathers, as mothers, as young people and old. So this text challenges our idolatry. It says God already has a claim on us. He already has a relationship with us. 
And an astounding act of grace, he called us to be his people. That is our identity. And we were baptized to prove it into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. By baptism incorporated into this Christian church. He said he is our God. He said that we are his people. And now we need to respond. We need to love him with an exclusive love. We need to say as Joshua did. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we need to raise our children in this way as well. Because he is our God. Because we are his people. Because we belong to him. Amen.